I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. So, I heard you just say that you feel incredibly nervous about people's response to this. Yeah, I've been really wondering what people think about our story so far. We drop them in a crisis, and a crisis that is pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, overall, it's not like we chose to put them at the sweet, gentle part of the river. We put them in the rapids. This is a lot. I can see myself in this. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? Where are you going to take us? And the truth is, is our story is like many stories. And that's why I think it's a little triggering. Yeah. And this is why we're talking about it in this way, because I tend to believe that at the end of time, when we're all gathered around that great cosmic campfire in the sky and we're sharing the inner details of what went on for us and the highs and the lows and the dark nights of the soul, we're going to be absolutely shocked at how uncreative and how absolutely repetitive our stories are going to sound. They're the same. We live in a time where we connect on social media and we often just propose the best parts of ourselves or we don't actually present much at all. We show up at our kids' sporting games and we give a smile and a hello and the best parts of us or we snapshot our family vacation. We don't necessarily show the tears and the anguish. And I think a lot of people will be really shocked to hear, whoa, didn't know all that was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I've gotten so many messages, women and men who have said, I have been in your shoes. I think this was actually one of the, the largest shocks for me, right? Because I, I think there's so many people who identify with being hurt, with having been victimized, with having been traumatized by relationships, betrayed, cheated on, and bottom line, disappointed in love. But what I'm hearing from so many is I was the toxic one. I was the one who betrayed. I was the one who abandoned. I was the one who uh, made the choice that burned the building to the ground. It's easy to point fingers. I think that and when we hear there's two sides to every story, that's such an important part of what we're talking about. There's two sides to a story. What's my responsibility? What is the other person's responsibility? And oftentimes we don't hear from all parties involved. One of the things that's uh, come up for me are some of the critiques of the different sides. No surprises. Some of the critiques were directed at me um, or maybe at you. You should have left his ass um, or, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater. What's it like to hear those messages? Yikes, they hurt. Um, no one ever likes to, to hear that. And... The anxiety, putting something out like this is the anxiety of letting it go, letting your story go. So um, the willingness on my part to let that go has been difficult. I don't want to hear negative things. I don't want to hear that people don't like my actions or second guess that. Um, and at the same time, it's uniquely mine. And unless you walk that journey, you don't know. And I also want to say on the other aspect of that, 
is there are some really negative, toxic things out there that you should leave. And it's not always worth staying. So I am not a proponent, listen carefully out there, for staying at all costs. Please hear this again. This is not my message. Do not stay at all costs. You have to know what works for you and what you can invest in, what is yours to carry and what is not. You have to have two people willing to change, not one and a half-ass attempt or not two half-ass attempts. It's so true. When we tell our story, people are so often inclined to hear what they want to hear. Right. And so you're, you're referring to people who are messaging us or comments that are pouring in like, oh my God, thank you. You've given me such hope in this abusive, neglectful, damaging, toxic relationship that it can work. And here I want to be clear. I believe that given willingness, like you're talking about, two parties who are both willing to show up 100%, that's 200%, that If you have the resources and the skills and the willingness, you can overcome just about anything. You can move mountains. But when you don't have two parties who are willing to change, and when you don't have the skills, and when you don't have the resources or the supports around you, that likelihood is much lower. You know, many things are possible. The miraculous is even possible, but not the ridiculous. Yeah, I think one of the things I've heard is, If we can just get past this, I know there's something beautiful underneath. And one of the responses is, do you want to do the work? Is the other person really wanting to do the work? And one person just can't do the work alone. There's gold, I think, under every being. The ability to see it, the ability to know it, the ability to take responsibility and desire that. That's something completely different. Yeah. I want to actually say how interesting it is that the person who is so often the one who is the wounded party seems to be the lightning rod for critique in this case. A small but noticeable thread of comments said, well, you wouldn't have cheated if she would have been making you happy. What wasn't she doing? Why wasn't she caring for you in the way that you needed to be cared for? Well, my hackles go up, that's for sure. (laughs) And it makes me want to fight. But I think that in relationship, you always have unhappy parties. Like you may have been unhappy. Maybe I was unhappy. But there's so much more to the story. And when we take something at a base level, we become so shallow in understanding how relationships work. So I think we had two people in a relationship with uh, shadows and we couldn't see them and we couldn't be honest. And we didn't even know what we needed. We were acting out of infancy, really, and allowing our adolescent infant self to be in control of our adult functioning. Yeah, this line of reasoning is really cute to me. And what I mean by that is I can see people stretching to give me the benefit of the doubt in this. They want me to be the good guy in it. And they're like, well, hey, if you would have only had the freedom to ask, but you didn't, your hands were tied by this person. My God, listen, wasn't so. Two people had shadows. I made choices, choices that were profoundly ineffective, choices that were wrong, choices that broke the agreements we made. 
I'm clear on that. I tend to think we make some of these critiques, whether of you or me, based out of our own stories, right? We want to be understood. And I can only imagine that people who are kind of sharing these comments, whether it's the, you should leave his ass, or she just didn't make you happy, or uh, what kind of man would do this, tend to actually reflect more of our own personal histories than listening to the story across the table. Yeah, we have our projections going on. What comes out of us and our judgments and our viewpoints are really very personal to us. So when we hear that or we get that information, oftentimes we think, oh, that's part of your story. That's less about my story and my experience. And so giving our story to the audience means I have to let go because people are going to bring and hear what they want to. My hope is, is that they can know that they're not alone and that relating is difficult. Relating is complicated. And I hope honesty is a way that people can relate in the future. I love that. The reality of projections is that we're almost constantly projecting. Really, our ego persona is is sort of like a greatest hits uh, rerun marathon. All it's doing is rerunning the hits of our life, the big moments over and over and over and projecting it onto the screen of our current events so that we kind of step out and, and we see what could be a new event, but we don't see it clearly. Instead, we see it laminated with this past moment. So the other person comes into view, the story, the situation. We're not seeing that other person. We're not seeing that story. We're seeing this previous encounter, this previous moment laminated onto it. So it looks incredibly familiar. By the way, listener, this is what we're hoping for. We actually want you to project your story onto this. Here's the thing. Your story matters. This is our story, but we want you to take our story and apply your story to it, listening as though you're doing the work right alongside us. I think that's so important that we begin to have conversations where we hear stories not our own, but apply them, bend them, hammer them, make them effective and useful in our life and incorporate them into our story. One of the things that we continue to see is the need for people to be seen. And I think this is a great vehicle for that. When people reach out and they say, this is my story, this is my experience, or poor you, or she should have done that. One of the main things that I hear is, please see me. I've had an experience. I have something too. And many times in life, we don't feel seen or we feel like it's just our story. No one else has experienced this. Listen, relationships are mirrors. Just like what you've said, we have a perspective and we hope that you bring your perspective and challenge yourself in your relating as well. Now, every story, especially these kind of stories, start in such a way as we've been talking about with a kind of narrative that doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen next. Obviously, we we set up with the scene of the crime, a murder, a a dead body, a corpse of a marriage. But then we drop back and, and are talking about foreshadowing. If we would have just known, if we would have known what to look for, then maybe we would have followed the clues. But I don't think that's where any love story really begins. Not with foreshadowing. 
A love story begins with two wide-eyed lovers falling for one another in a sea of celebration and connection possibilities, right? Oh my gosh. You had my attention the moment that I walked in to the room. The building blocks are so important. The fire, the passion, the history. Some people look at that and say, yeah, why in the world would you hang on? And you might say, well, you don't know our story. It's the first day of my first job out of grad school. I'm really excited. I'm really nervous. I walk into a staff room and there is this guy. He's captivating the room. He has style, he has passion, and there's lots of people around listening to him. And I'm listening to him all of a sudden. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Why do so many people want to hear what he has to say? I look up and I see a face that I've actually seen maybe a week earlier at a prior meeting. It's hard to mistake that smile. She's beaming. I remember her from the earlier meeting because it had been her very first introduction that she was coming on board. And I had been vaguely interested at the time, even raised my eyebrow. I probably shouldn't have. So he starts talking and people are asking questions and I stop and I say, what the heck are you talking about? It was like, I wanted to be part of the conversation, but also let him know that I wasn't going to be just like all the others. People don't interrupt me in the middle of my storytelling. It's not as if anyone feels entirely comfortable flagging me down when I'm really on a roll, when I'm in the flow of a crescendoing moment. And yet here she is, this beautiful, smiling woman, and she is stopping me in my tracks. I have no clue how to handle this. It's a challenge. I want to challenge him. I want to get his attention. I feel fire inside of me. My eyes are flickering. The thing is, I walk out of that room and I feel impassioned. I call my best friend and I say, um, I just had this interaction, this really interesting guy. That's all I can think about. I call my soon-to-be ex-girlfriend and tell her about an argument I just got in with a new girl at the office. I'm sure she was more than a little mystified. No. Miffed. Yes. My best friend says, be careful. On one hand, she knows me, but she knows there's something in my voice. By the way, I am dating someone. She had brought up the man that she was dating at the time. It had actually been a part of the argument we had gotten into and the conversation we were having. She said her parents didn't approve of this person that that she was in relationship with. She actually said that they were disowning her, something like that. He wasn't Christian enough for them, or maybe he had kids from a prior marriage. My mind was reeling around the details. I couldn't exactly grasp upon why, but I knew they didn't approve. And I knew that she was in a collision course with a traditional establishment, which made her more interesting to me. I was on my way up after that meeting to talk to my parents and tell them 
I was going to marry this guy. Not the guy I'd talked to. The guy I was in relationship with. I was going to set the tone. I was going to say I had enough. But you know, in the back of my mind, I wasn't thinking about that conversation as much as thinking about the one I just had in the staff room. I was having to make hard decisions. Hard decisions about relationships that weren't working. A divorce I had just been through. A new girlfriend that I was really on the rebound with and unfortunately repeating a lot of the mistakes I had made earlier and getting nothing right. I felt bored with even myself. Unfunny. Ungenerous. Uncool. And here in a moment, sparks had flown. She had laughed at my jokes. She had hit back. There was something here that was interesting, but I didn't dare let myself think of it. Quite honestly, my dance card was full. My dance card was full, and I was fighting for something that I wasn't even sure I wanted. So up I went to talk to my parents. I laid down the law. This is what I want. And then I drove back down, started work the next day. I didn't see her again for two weeks, maybe. The time didn't sail because, honestly, my life was consumed with other things. One day, coming out of the office, I see her going in. She doesn't look radiant. That smile has been wiped off of her face. And in a moment of characteristic caddishness, I look at her and say, Did that boyfriend of yours dump you? Who the hell says something like that? And I, I look at him and say, Yeah, and I'm pregnant. I don't even know him. I don't even know this guy I'm talking to. We've had one witty banter. And I look at him, and he is probably the second or third person in the world that knows this thing that's going inside of me. I can't believe it. I think he gives me a hug, and I walk away embarrassed. Why did I tell him all these details? I call one of my good friends, one of the only friends I had left, who also happened to work at this same place. And I say, remember that girl who I had that weird conversation with like two weeks ago? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be going anywhere close to that situation. Relationships, they never start where we think they are going to start. And that's for everyone. We find ourselves in interesting situations at work, at school, in an internship, online. You never know where to expect a connection. Well, that's not exactly true anymore, right? I I tend to think that Tinder and dating apps have sort of made this check-the-box romance kind of approach where we think we should know exactly what we're getting into at all times, and we can simply scan the page and dispense with them, knowing 100% with certainty what we're getting ourselves into. There are different ways of relating from different generations and different age gaps. And 
things have changed over the years, haven't they? They have changed. But the, the humorous part about this is that in spite of those dating app profiles, I think everybody is actually in the same boat where no matter how certain we are of where we start, we have no clue where we're going to end up. I could have reviewed your entire profile and walked away in that moment. Sure. But I probably wouldn't have. I probably would have just felt like I knew exactly what I was getting into. But we don't, do we? Yeah, it's the spark. It's the spark that people are drawn to. Something different in that moment. The promise of a future. The promise of excitement, of butterflies, of doing something different this time or imagining something new. Right. And it doesn't exactly matter the context you begin. There is a sense you don't know where this is going. You really don't. You can make all kinds of assumptions. You can make all kinds of assessments. But it seems like our best guesses rarely hold up to the light of reality. And so here we are, you know, and in this case, it wasn't even a friendship. It was kind of like a debate that we entered into. You know, a question here. Does everybody love the thrill of a debate? I mean, is that the sign of like first sparks for a lot of people, do you think? I don't know. I think there has to be a little bit of fire right? If that was a Tinder profile, what was going on, what would yours have said? Loves public speaking, enjoys debate, um, enjoys being what, adored. Like <laughs> oh, there are God. some things that like are happening there. What would a mind been? Oh yeah. Pushing back, pushing buttons, antagonizing people, getting the last word. <laughs> would we have chosen <laughs> each other? We don't sound very nice in this moment, <laughs> but there was that spark. Whether it's Tinder or walking into a staff room, something makes you pause and is grabbing your attention. Right. And th this actually is the building block for all emotional setups. You have a prompting event that happens, but unless your awareness falls on that prompting event, it just recedes into the great ocean of experiences. So awareness or noticing the thing becomes really the first stage of relationship or how an emotion is built in that case. In this moment, we see each other. We have this interesting encounter. It's not just an argument. It's not just kind of a, a fun little debate over fundamental religion uh, and belief systems. It's also something a little more, and we both knew it. It's part of the erotic, too. We were very curious. Eroticism has to do with who is this mystery that's in front of me? I'm so curious. I want to know more. I ask. I step into it. Contrast that with the relationships that were going on in our immediate experience or, or recent past. We were at dead ends with those the loops were replaying themselves over and over and over. I didn't know that about you at the time, but that was certainly true of my experience. You know, I was in this whirlpool, a lot of motion, not much real movement. And uh, I felt exhausted in life. And all of a sudden, here is this thing that doesn't resemble anything I'm experiencing right then. Yeah, I was exhausted and I was depleted in mine. I was making a stand over something. I think, again, that same fire that I brought into that conversation, I was trying to queue up in my old relationship. I was trying to make something happen that wasn't happening. And so those were parts of us that showed up in those initial conversations. 
The second encounter also highlights something. And what I think that second encounter, first of all, besides me opening mouth and inserting foot, I do think that there is an interesting willingness on both our parts to be open and vulnerable in that space. And I think that's a second building block, a fundamental, besides the spark, besides the awareness uh, and the sort of attention that you're paying a situation, Suddenly now there's an openness or a vulnerability to have a conversation or make a connection with one another. Even if it's a ridiculous and irreverent joke like I made, or certainly the much heavier and weightier admission that you gave. Yeah, there was a tenderness in that place in which one was attending to and one was honesty and openness. And something that you didn't know at that time is that I felt so ashamed. It felt so heavy to me. A lot of people wouldn't have this response. That was mine. I felt like alone in the entire world. And I didn't know who I could talk to. And so when you approached me with your level of vulnerability and what seemed like, you know, banter and kind of care, oh man, I must have felt that openness because I laid it at your feet. Yeah. We never know what the situation is in front of us. And again, this is what I'm kind of hammering on. This is one of my great displeasures with the tender romance um, phenomenon because it, it seeks to categorize and to know what we can expect in any given situation. And I just don't think that's the truth. I don't really believe that we know what's on the other side until we live it. We can try and group and categorize with reasonable certainty, but that feels like a fool's gambit. That, that at its best, life is tenuous, situations are unpredictable, and you have to show up and make your best assessment at the time. I remember even looking at those profiles and trying to figure them out and checking boxes and how to answer them. And I believe I didn't even really know myself enough or well enough to answer real honestly. You know, it's like, if I check this, what does this actually mean in relationship? So we can check a box, but Oftentimes, we don't know ourselves too darn well. So how we show up to the real world encounters of life actually matters much more than the boxes we check or the public profiles that we're putting forward. How do we encounter the crisis? How do we encounter the situation as it lands? And in this case, how we both chose to was with a degree of humor, irreverence, openness, vulnerability. These are, to use a word that we've used before, foreshadowing for the same skills that we would use in later situations. So when I look back on just those first two encounters, I'm saying, well, we're already drawing on traits that will become invaluable to us later on. We really want to watch for those signs, I think, even initially. If you can kind of think about part of your job is assessing how does a person show up to the unexpected? How does a person show up to the tender, vulnerable, awkward moments of life? That's actually how they're going to show up to the crisis later down the road, every time. She's looking at me intently over a beautiful chicken Alfredo wood-fired pizza. We've been going on these not dates for a while now. Adventuring, walking together. I'm her walking partner, actually, she says. Just friends, of course. But we're feeling each other out. We're trying to figure out who 
this other person is in our life. And then she asks me, What really happened? Why did you get a divorce? I'm sitting there and I'm wondering what the story is behind this man. He's so interesting. He's so funny. He keeps me moving. He becomes my walking partner. And I want to know what happened. What's the story? He has two kids. He was married for almost a decade. And I know very little about why things fell apart. I freeze. It's literally the moment I've been dreading most. Talking about the past, anything but the past. The present feels so good. The future, a glimmering possibility. But the past? Ugh, no, don't say it. Don't ask it. Don't look at me and need answers. How could anyone let you go? Why would they say no to you? Why would you say no to them? I fumble over words. Well, we had our differences. We didn't see eye to eye. <laughs> I'm sure she would probably say I wasn't always great. She, she's probably right. You know, we, we all have our flaws, don't we? Divorce seems like the last, the last thing that I'd ever want. How did it happen to you? I mean, gosh, what does your family think about it? And it feels so heavy. It's just so painful to talk about. Oh, I don't really want to talk about it too much, but the reality is that after nearly a decade, we had just changed. We were two different people. I can't imagine staying in that context anymore. I don't think she could either. In the end, we both made the decision to move forward. I guess that makes sense. You know, I've never been married before. And I walked away from a relationship. Thanks for talking about it. Thank God the questions ended. I'm amazed at how you stopped asking questions at that point. I think I felt so fortunate that you didn't grill me as your mother would at a later date, who was much more interested and less wide-eyed and um, accepting of anything I would say. But I was terrified that you would ask those questions. And then you stopped. Why? I'm not sure why I stopped asking questions. I don't know if I felt at the time that you had given me enough information. I needed to know more. I needed to know details. I needed to know what happened. Maybe I didn't feel like I had the permission to do that. Maybe I had my own set of shame around my ending of a relationship and I had very nearsighted vision of all the responsibilities I was in charge of and my own kind of crisis. I knew it was your crisis. I knew I had my crisis. Maybe I would let you have that private space. Mm, right. Towing the line between secrecy and privacy. But here I'm, I'm actually thinking we're, we're beginning to hit on a red flag. If the person you're making a new connection with cannot adequately talk about the past, if the chronologies feel slippery, if the timeline lapses for years, 
This is a major concern, right? Yeah, the details. The details are shifting and there's not much clarity in it. And there's not a lot of responsibility taking either. So that's an important piece too in terms of red flags when we think about relationships is, is there blame? Is there responsibility taking? Is there reflection? Is there anything that someone learned out of that situation that they would do differently? And so we softly touched it, but we did not dig deep into the details. I'm sitting at a restaurant and I'm looking at him. I'm describing the sense of shame that I feel in this moment. And shame is something that has become very familiar to me. It's the thing that I inhabit. I don't feel good about who I am and the decisions that have caught up with me. And as I'm sharing this story, I'm feeling so stuck. Like the story is not something that I have power over, but something that I'm being acted upon me. And he leans into me and he looks in my eyes and he says, You know, you can write any story you want. It's your story. Make it a good one. You're the one who gets to tell it. It's yours. As I hear that, It's like the words I always needed to hear. Like a balm to my soul. I can't believe I'm given the permission to write the future that I want and the way that I can and should. From here on, it's permission. And you know what it's not? It's not shame. It's the most beautiful gift. I've been hearing her talk this whole time about her own sense of shame. And I can't believe she even feels ashamed about these places. A beautiful child to be born into the world is nothing to feel ashamed of. The things I did, (laughs) those are the things to feel ashamed of. She doesn't need to know them, though. If I can just reach out across the table, if I can just tell her the words she needs to hear for her life, and, and that's what I found myself doing right then, and, and I'm saying it, and it's coming out of me, and I'm telling her that she can write her own story, that she can live a new narrative, and these words don't just belong to her. It's like the flow of spirit is coming through me and I am speaking the words of life I need to hear myself. I think we're both transfixed. I think we're both riveted to the present moment and begin to believe in the future again, hope again, and that this person across the table is the person who can unlock that door. Anything is possible from here on out. That's what I believe, and that's what I heard. For me, for anybody. I don't know what he's thinking, but I think anything's possible for him too. Looking at her, beaming with delight, 
How could I tell her of my own shadows? The haunted places that I am so fearful of journeying into. How could I risk disconnection? So I obscured whatever I imagined would take me away from her. I hid in order to belong. I think red flags are an interesting thing because it emphasizes a truth that one of our primary jobs as we begin to enter into relationship with someone is actually evaluating them and if they're the kind of partner that we want in our life. But that's not how we approach relationships so often. Instead, we approach relationships quite the opposite, which is posturing in such a way where they'll accept us. So looking back, my guess is you were much more interested in that moment and making sure you were the kind of person who I would want to accept fully, right? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, is that wanting to make space for the other. It's okay. You're all right because I want to be okay and I want to be all right. And so there's hesitation in really stepping into that place of honesty and truth. Right. We, we have this experience where we're not only safeguarding our own truths, but, but we're also preventing them from sharing theirs. We're not asking the relevant questions. We're not digging. We're certainly not prying. We're playing very, very polite. And in part, it does have to do with the basic human instinct of peacocking, right? We're, we're strutting our feathers. We want to look good. We want to impress this person. It would not, in fact, be impressive if suddenly we said, now, when exactly did you get your divorce? You know, or now, did you have any relationships with any other people? How many times did you cheat? Oh, what would your ex say was the reason you split up? Which, by the way, is just a great question in general. Everybody should think of that question when they're dating someone new. Yeah, that would be great perspective to step into. And we're wanting to put our best foot forward. We're not wanting to bring the garbage of the past to the party. We're wanting to bring the party favors. We're wanting to bring the fun. We're wanting to bring the beer, right? We're wanting to bring the games and not uh, what lingers from the past. So we show up with the best version of ourselves for as long as we can. And for as long as we can, can last quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the first stage, of course, of relationships, which is union. You're coming together, but it's littered with fantasy. I mean, it, it is fantasy that helps us kind of peek our heads out of that solitary confinement. And we begin to imagine new possibilities, right? And um, we start to think, okay, this is the person who's going to help me buck the trend. And we feel awestruck and it's not just a novel person sitting in front of us. It's also like a novel version of ourselves we're now imagining. Um, they help us imagine a new kind of person. So we're not eager to disrupt that at all. We have the ability to dream again and to create something new and to cut away from the old storyline. This time will be different. I will not do what I did before. And this person they will be different. They won't do what they've done before as well. And so we look with those rose-colored glasses upon the situation. I don't think we want to ask those questions. We don't want to disrupt our point of view at the beginning. Yeah, this is the gift of illusions. And it is a gift. 
I think that's a generous view of it, but but I really do think it is that fantastic vision of this other person that kind of pries us out of those places we would otherwise find ourselves in. And it's probably why the hard work of relating to another person in these first stages is actually about kind of peeking our heads above the clouds and seeing what is, seeing what's there, right? Really examining. And you're not really wanting outside sources unless they're for you. That's another red flag I would say is that we want people in our corner cheering for us and having the same vision we do. And so we're careful to protect the thing that we love and hoping the people around us want to have that same vision for us as well. Right. Like if you were asking a lot of questions of me, if you were kind of interrogating me or, or seeming suspicious and kind of grilling me over, it might be just as likely to kind of write you off as someone who was not so pleasant, not so nice, and I might move on to the next human. I think it's interesting here as we think about red flags, what are other red flags that come up? One of the ones I think about in terms of our relationship that should have been a red flag to both of us, you know, we both had kids. I had two from a prior marriage. You're pregnant. We don't talk about sex at all. We don't even talk about sex the, the three obligatory times we would have had to have it. It was like sex didn't exist. That's a major red flag, right? Major red flag in that. We didn't even know what we thought about sex, the roles of it, um, the experiences. There wasn't even the conversation. It was an assumption. And I don't think we're different than a lot of couples. We make the assumption that we have the same point of view about sex, which is what? I don't know, right? It's a guessing game, but we think, oh, it's probably similar. Yeah. And, and, and of course, culturally, we might say, well, we'll have sex to find out what we think about sex together. You know, are we compatible? Do we, do we kind of, do our, 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 our parts fit together? That's about as much as many of us talk about our perspectives on sex. And then we're shocked five to 10 years later when we're hitting that absolute wall of, oh my God, they like this? I didn't know they were into that. They've been hiding it this whole time. We didn't have the courage to have those conversations or even know those conversations were acceptable. And specifically for you and I, we came from very conservative Christian um, upbringings. So sex, we'll figure it out when we get there. Mm -hmm. That was the part of the conversation, we'll figure it out when we get there. This is also a really, really great window into what I would describe as nice guy red flags. Nice guy red flags, which is a little different than, you know, bad guy red flags, are the nice guy's going to be real civil, domesticated, pleasant. He's not going to bring up dirty, naughty, nasty topics. He's certainly not going to talk about anything that could ever be untamed, unsafe, dangerous, like sex. And there's also the good girl part of that. We'll keep things together. If I'm in a relationship with you, you have two kids and I'm pregnant. Well, I'm going to be good at fill in the blank. I will be that mother figure that everybody needs. And so here comes this almost this view of purity 
versus sexuality. Right. We're both kind of offering each other these archetypal illusions. Other red flags that kind of come to mind have a lot to do uh, with, like, they don't have any friends. Now, at that point in time, for us, you actually had a fairly insulated, in a positive way, social circle. You had rallied a, a lot of people around you. You had you had gathered uh, individuals into your corner, and you were raising support for yourself. It seemed like you had a vibrant social circle. I just came out of grad school, so I had a bunch of friends that were my age. I was a teacher at the time, so I had a bunch of friends who I worked with. And then I had people from my past. And at that point, I really needed everybody. Um, I found myself in this place again, being pregnant and then single. And so really desiring community around me for that support. Uh, so I did. I rallied the troops that I needed in that space. And it's kind of interesting later down the line, uh, that was more difficult for me to sustain was friendships. But when we met, I did have quite a few of them. And I didn't. You know, I had lost a lot in leaving a community I'd been a part of and then the subsequent divorce. And I was fairly gutted. I only had a few really meaningful relationships. Again, I would say to anybody, hey, that's a red flag. Do they, do they have people around them? Do they have deep connections to their past? Do they have roots? Now, as it turns out, I really did have a, a few close friends that had lasted a, a long while and stood by me. Through, through many things, but not a lot of them, not, not a lot of depth there. I had cut, cut through and burned away a lot of those relationships. That would have been a red flag to me looking backwards. Now, here's the interesting thing. Again, we go back to wishful thinking because one of the things that you and I talked about early on, you said, you know, I like the fact that you're having hard conversations with old acquaintances. You're cutting away relationships that don't deserve your time and you're reforging um, old friendships that you want to reconnect with. So you gave a great deal of permission in those spaces for that kind of lack of friendship in some ways because you were hopeful. Yeah, assuming. I think often one of those red flags is seeing what we want to see. Right? We're making assumptions based on hope and possibility and not facts. So I would say that red flag is, I didn't have enough details to make that assumption. Um, it was what I presumed in that moment. And you also presumed about my friendships, right? And later on, that became quite desolate for me. And at that time, I was really rallying the support so I could make it through tough moments. And then um, I made it through some tough moments and then that subsided. Yeah, I had assumed those were really, really entrenched and, and maybe even far deeper than they were. And I didn't quite realize they were more of a recent convection. What would you say other potential red flags are in a connection? I'm thinking things like lack of trust or possessiveness might be one that we sometimes see that that real strong insecurity that won't let you out of its sight, an inability to tackle or have difficult conversations. Avoidance, avoidance of emotion, avoidance of conflict, avoidance of closeness. Think that when people feel that and then they pull away, how they get along right with their uh, family of origin is an important thing. What do they think about those relationships? Um, what are the stories that they tell? You know, we talked about family origin, but those are important stories. Thinking also early conversations about mismatched relationship goals. 
become a thing. This is why it's so important that the first part of your relationship shouldn't be about the relationship. And here I want to say this, almost every relationship that I've really gotten uh, kicked in the gut over started the same way. It was a very quick coming together and the topic of conversation ceased to be interest in the other person and it started to be interest in the relationship itself. What is this thing? How amazing is this happening between us? Oh my God, can you believe this? Um, Did we know each other in a past life? Who are you to me? Where are we going in this? But what it's not talking about is who you are or who I am. There's a great glut of knowing and, and conversations that would shed light on that. And I also want to say the element of play is really important. So when I think of those conversations that you're having, they're not necessarily lighthearted. They're heavy. They're in the trenches. They're doing work before there's something to work about. And play in early relationship and enjoyment and laughter and frivolity, those are important aspects um, to getting to know one another, but also to know, like, can we also have the lightness of a relationship? I can remember in a previous relationship, things were really difficult and they were hard and I was really working through it. And I had a peer that said, hmm, what's going on here? And I said, I think I was just made for a challenge. And he said, is this the kind of challenge you want to have? It's true. There was so much turmoil versus play and passion and enjoyment. You got to have that as well. Yeah. An absence of play an over heaviness or kind of self-awareness at the beginning. These are all red flags to look for, but inevitably the good often outweighs the bad, right? And this is sort of how love always works. I think you override those instincts You tell these lovely fictions uh, that we need in order to stretch out across that immense loneliness and find one another reaching back. That's really the first stages of love at all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That, that was my signature. Oh, 